Welcome to our discussion segment on securing foundations. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Let's get started. Hey, Joe, how's it going? Oh, just fine. Good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Great podcast, as always. Thank you. I really enjoyed it a yeah. lot. How much did you know about Philip of Macedon before you, you took on this particular topic? So I knew that he, because of what he did for Alexander, not specifically for Alexander, but for himself, Alexander wouldn't have been able to advance as fast as as he did at at the onset anyway. And you knew he was played by Val Kilmer in that horrible movie. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I have forgotten that, actually. Oh, you did? Yeah. okay. You've reminded me of that terrible... Folks, that was the first movie in my life I ever walked out of. I was... was just disgusted. I agree, which is why we won't be discussing this movie anymore today. Uh, we're <laughs> we're going to talk about the real Philip of Macedon and not the uh, character you saw in the Oliver Stone movie. So this is our first in a series of two uh, specifically military-oriented topics we're going to do. So a lot of these questions are military-oriented, so hopefully we've got a lot of weapons wonks listening to us here. You went through a great deal of detail Actually, now that I say this, we've had three back-to-back-to-back military ones. Anyway, I was going to say, okay. it's like Sorry. somebody in this room is a the military historian or something. I, yeah, I know. Who, I mean, who, I who knew? Uh, anyway, don't worry, folks. We're not just doing military stuff this season. There are some people who find that boring, though I don't know who you are, and I pity you. Anyway, so we, last week we talked a, a great deal about how the phalanx worked at Thermopylae and, and all of that. How, Correct. How exactly, because you, you described the Theban Wedge— but I'm just curious as to the me- mechanics of how the Theban Wedge was able to break the phalanx, because from everything that I've read, it was the Roman legion that was able to overwhelm the phalanx, as we're going to talk about next week with the Battle of Cannae. But this seems to be kind of like an, a, a precursor of what the Romans were able to do. So I wonder if you could give us some more detail on that point. Sure. So uh, imagine a single point of contact rather than a series of contacts across a line. So if you have a wedge of people hitting at one specific point in a line, that point of contact is going to be weaker uh, rather than stronger. So in a box, so, so if, if the soldiers are formed in a box or a row, right, um, the wedge is going to hit at the center or the side. And so whoever's in that point of contact is going to be overwhelmed immediately. And it's very hard for men who have drilled to attack a specific way to reform around a wedge. And so it just caused a lot of problems, both in the short term and the long term. That makes sense. And then what was, uh, what was the role of cavalry? Because I know the Macedonians had a great deal of cavalry that Alexander used later on. But did, did he get that from his father or was that kind of his own development of military strategy on top of what Philip used. He actually got that out of his dad. He did. Okay. Yeah. So the the strategy was this. So Philip created a phalanx that was larger and using pikes that were longer. And so he would more ed- on them in a second. Yeah. yeah. So he would edge his infantry forward with his cavalry on the flanks. Okay. And then as his infantry would advance forward, his cavalry would start to close in. And so it was a taunt. He was trying to get the men he was attacking to turn to either face his infantry or his cavalry, either one. And wherever they turned, the other side would attack. Okay. So it would envelop his enemies. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So kind of a, a precursor to what happened later with the Romans, because they used that, that single or double envelopment tactic very, very effectively. Right. The side of a phalanx is pretty vulnerable. Right. And so if they're turned towards an infantry unit, then their sides are exposed, and just picking up their pikes and turning is not as easy as it sounds, mm-hmm. especially when they're engaged in combat. Sure. Speaking of the pikes, the Sarisa was, you said, 16 to 20 feet long. How does one man use a pike that's that big? 
they're strong. I, no, it's no, well, <laughs> no, I'm not not carry, but like, how do you wield that effectively? Because the Spartans they would use their pikes for for pretty close combat, but their pikes or their spears were only about six and a half to seven feet long. Yeah. So a sixteen foot pike is not exactly easy to turn and wheel and and. Correct. As easily as so, I, th I think from what I read, the bases would actually be in the ground, not not fixed in the ground, but be like placed there as a brace. So it would be something that the front line could hold up by having the the end not as I said in the ground, but on top of the so ground. Almost so almost they could like, like forty five degree right. angle or right. something like yeah. that. Oh, okay. So they wouldn't necessarily use it as a as a as a stabbing weapon or as a thrusting weapon. It would be used basically to hold the enemy off. It was actually as both. So I imagine someone who could not, who wouldn't want to carry something that huge mm -hmm. all the time. So in terms of an advance, it would be carried. In terms of employment, it, it would be carried. It was long enough where you could actually grab it, not exactly at its end. Right. Like so, if you needed to adjust or or, or not, it's fairly easy to do. Okay. Or, so I don't want could, to say easy, but right. Easy. So you could shorten it basically yeah. by by. Yeah putting mo most of the length behind you yeah. and okay because because the the strength of it was the distance the extra feet it, it actually had so once you got past that once you got in closer it, it's its advantage wasn't as important so okay. once you're one once you're up close you can actually like carrying it in the center mm -hmm. rather than yeah so. or like or like two-thirds of the way right, forward right. or something yeah. like that okay and did they carry swords as well yes and did they use any kind of missile troops like slingers or archers or anything like that um i, I believe so but i don't how prominent it was his main emphasis was the, the what, infantry and the cavalry yeah, yeah. okay all right okay so now uh, he did use siege tactics so i mean right but those i wouldn't catapults consider those, yeah i wouldn't like consider that. those like slingers no 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 i'm specifically missile troops is what i was curious about okay you talked briefly about the spartans and their response to philip of macedon and, yeah. and you see you you see memes about this and on uh, on history pages if you're a nerd like me and follow them uh the spartans responding just you know, Philip sends this long, this long message. If you know we uh, conquer your country, I will do this to you. This, 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 this. And the Spartans simply reply, "If." So, is that historically documented? Is that the invention of later Greek or Roman historians? How how accurate can we be when it, when we tell this story to our audience and when I tell it in sure. class as I do every year? So they absolutely said if in some way. Okay. Um, there's, there's three different translations of what Philip said and two of what Spartan, Sparta said. So, but if was the primary crux of it. Meaning like, you're meaning, not going to get, like you're not going to take a, our country. Yeah, or, the key word here, if you can do this, which you can't. Which you can't. Yeah, okay. and strategically Sparta was, when we think about geography, wasn't as important as other areas so it was just kind of like do i want to expend my time here really yeah when he was advancing that particular area wasn't as important as other areas were okay so so he was more focused to the north uh, I th around athens and the other big Peleus. yeah and i i think it was a challenge to him but at the time it's like do i expend resources with this attack that I could use elsewhere that would have a greater emphasis and okay. importance there. So, so it wasn't necessarily fear of the Spartans, as kind of modern interpretations would it say. It could have been. Um, I think I think Philip, reading about what I've read mm -hmm. and know about him, is a very practical guy. Okay. So in terms of what he was seeking to achieve, the question had to be asked, if I attack Sparta and go through with this, will I strengthen my uh, the position or not? Okay. And I think that looking at everything, he decided it would not. But you don't think he feared a, a second Thermopylae or something like that where he would lose his army if he attacked that one city? I think Thermopylae was like pretty unique. Yeah. Um, so I think if he had faced Sparta, he wouldn't have done it the same way the Persians had done it. Fair enough. Okay. 
you talked quite a bit about the various reforms in the army, specifically uh, what the infantry was doing with their new weapons um, and the new role of cavalry. But military historians are now starting to look more at things that are almost off the battlefield, but which contribute at least as much, if not more, to victory. And so I was curious if you could expand a little bit about the logistics of actually getting his troops to various positions to attack his enemies, because it's one thing to say, I have this this great army, but you have to actually get it to move quickly enough and achieve strategic surprise, maybe not tactical, but you've at least surprised your enemy to the point where they can't react. So how is he able to do that, given that he didn't have any kind of modern technology, that Macedonia had very few roads at that time, how is he able to forge such a quick-moving army that ultimately conquered all of Greece, and which his son then used to conquer the known world? The, the first step was to actually create an army of actual soldiers that were trained, that were paid, that were motivated to actually fight. As they began to win battles, yep. their, that sense of pride helped out a lot too. But when you have a trained army that's actually in shape, they're going to move naturally faster. Okay. Um, when they're trained to um, move fast all day, then they're expecting that. Mm-hmm. So on top of that, he, he instituted all of these other changes that were brand new, such as um, carts were, were used to carry supplies and other personal belongings of the soldiers, like like larger tents and all these like really nice things. They would things. just throw it onto a yeah, cart. Yeah, just so like they... throw it onto a cart, like libraries and... and libraries, other, yeah, really? Just, <laughs> just scrolls, I don't know. Oh. So just like okay. personal belongings that they would take to war. And so he outlawed that. He's like, this is not going to work out. This is not conducive so to us. So you carry whatever you want to bring. Exactly. Very similar to how it is now. I mean, there's there's supply chain. There's mm-hmm. there's trucks. There's all that stuff. But a soldier out in the field carries a lot of stuff. And for those of you who travel with AAT, you carry what yeah, you bring yeah, on our absolutely. trips. Yeah. There are uh, stories about that, which we can tell at another time, yeah. with Joe carrying five bags through France. I did carry five bags. He did, yes. Like backpack, front, was- back. Like carrying it was anyways. impressive. Anyway, neither here nor there. I digress. Uh, so it's uh, so he had an, an in shape army who were trained, who were proud, who were be like starting to earn that pride, and then he just did away with all of the old tactics in terms of tra- that army getting on the road or out in the field, where there were no extra people, there were no extra supplies, there were no extra um, uh, luxuries that the soldiers in Greece used to carry. And so it's just he made war war. It wasn't about being as comfortable as you could. He trained his soldiers the exact opposite. Okay. And so I think that they came away with that with a sense of expectation. Do you know if he got any of that from the Spartans? Because they had very similar systems of logistics in their army. Probably. I mean, he when he was a hostage, he just had a lot of exposure to different tactics and strategies. Okay. And so I think that there's a good chance that he did see that uh, because he was weighing what would work and what didn't. And in the podcast, I talked about his first two battles. And he really tried and tested a lot of those things that he actually implemented over time mm-hmm. in those battles. And so I think he had an opportunity to test what would work and what would not work. Do you think he still would have been successful had he not implemented specifically his logistical reforms, or do you think that was really the key to his victories? I think that was a major key. You do? Okay. Yeah, because he was able to move fast. He was able to keep everyone fed still, and because that was part of it. I mean, when you're expelling extra energy, you mm-hmm. have to pack, pack extra food. You have to pack extra supplies. Right. And in terms of, of what he conquered, he did away with the old tactic when he got into an area that had a walled city. He didn't just like, I'm going to hang out here until all of you starve. He actually Mm -hmm. laid siege to it in a new way that people really hadn't seen. So he used siege weapons. Right. Right. Okay. Did he actually force his way into cities or did they typically surrender? Like, did he have to bring in battering rams and 
you know, Lord of the Rings style break through a door or anything like that. Yeah, uh, he, he did. I don't know how prominent it was because I think because the siege weapons were so new, it was a little bit scary to see those things actually causing that kind of damage. And as I emphasize in the podcast, it's not like he just mowed over everyone. There were failures too. Later on, when people got used to this concept of, of a siege tactic, mm-hmm. um, they weren't as freaked out about it. So were is, there some cities that resisted? Oh yeah. Those, okay, so yeah. he wasn't able to take every city he, right. tried to, yeah. he tried to assault. Okay. I mean, not the first time, but right. as a, yeah, he, was, he, always, he was very good at recouping. He's just like, okay, I failed. I accept that. Time to try again. Okay. Yeah. You, you mentioned him being a hostage, and I want to kind of circle back to the beginning of the podcast before getting into the real deep questions. Not that these haven't been deep. Why was he sent away at, at a fairly young age, or was he captured? No, by, he was sent away. He was sent away by his father. Okay, so yeah. it was the, the, the it, old it, idea it was a, of— it, it was appeasement. It was, it was okay. like, how do I forge an alliance temporarily? I'm going to send my son to, to live in Illyria, and where, yeah. was, where was the other place he went to? Thebes. Uh, Thebes, okay. yeah. Yeah, it's— I think we've joked around in this podcast before. We're like, were there, there any good parents in, in the ancient world? But, I mean, it was just it was a practice. So Yeah. Speaking of good parents, his wives and his, and his family life. So you mentioned Olympias and his last wife, Eurydice. Yeah, who he renamed after his mom. Oh, he renamed her? Yes. Oh, her name was not, I can't remember. Eurydice? Yeah, yeah. I can't remember he her original. Her. Yeah, interesting. He, he did. Okay. It is. It's been the subject of a lot of, a lot of conversations huh, interesting. in books. Yeah. What do we know about his other five before we get to you know, Olympias? Not much. I know that he was still married to most of them when like, he would just continually mm-hmm. marry. The reason why Olympias is emphasized in history is because, and I, I don't say this lightly. I say this because this is what's been recorded in everything I've read over the years. She was crazy. I mean, she was, she was very, very jealous. Well, well okay. Hold on. <laughs> so she was jealous, but... We use the we throw the the word crazy around a lot. Do you mean all that right, she was right. mentally unstable, or she was behaving the way a lot of royal women did at that time? That I don't know. Okay. Okay. So I in you know a modern assessment is she she she's yeah crazy. yeah but she I cray, mean cray, cray, yeah <laughs> she cray. So the the challenge is is we can't apply. Well, I guess in certain cases we can, but it's it's easy to apply current moral standard to ancient times. Yeah, and so. I read she had his young wife and infant son murdered, and oh, she did. Hor- horrible. Horrible. Yeah. That is morally reprehensible. It's, and indefensible, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's unbelievably evil. Mm-hmm. But back then, you know, I don't know. It still was evil. It, still, it was still wrong. But, I mean, was that a common practice in an ancient mm-hmm. court? Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, it I mean, was. And, and it happened to Alexander's son. Yeah. His, his young son, I think he was eight or nine, when his father died and his generals had him had him murdered. not excusing so, it no no but, no but, but, but it was just, yeah it so, did happen so so to answer you she was jealous that word is used mm-hmm. in everything i said sure. to the point where she acted with malice so does that make her crazy i don't know okay but yeah um and how involved was as far as we know how involved was alexander in any plotting not specifically with the assassination but just her general undermining of her husband's agenda of his personal life of anything else do we know yeah alexander was involved Uh, most historians say he was not um he was not he was not involved in him being killed for sure i mean not for sure i don't know but i mean because i've read i've read accounts that suggest that he was involved yeah i i read the opposite yeah okay yeah i've read that it's more likely 
that the ceremony that Philip was going to was a complete affront to Olympias. It okay. was it was very insulting. Are you talking about the wedding or the incident where he was actually killed? Which one was the affront to Olympias? Uh, where he, he was actually killed. Oh, it was. Yeah. Why? Because I would think that his his wedding to another woman when he's still married to her that that would be the insult. So um, it, it was the the reason why. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. So okay. historians generally blame uh, Olympias. Well. Current, like currently, people. If are, they blame anyone, sorry, in the within the royal court, they, they focus on Olympias and not Alexander. Is that pretty accurate? Alexander's last on the list. Okay. Okay. So there's a lot of speculation right now that Pausanias and Philip were lovers. Um, okay. And there's also the speculation that Pausanias was assaulted by somebody in the family, and that was his way of getting back. Um, okay. So. So the spurned lover that you referenced in the text was, could be could, could could have been Philip. could have been yeah. Pausanias or it could have been Olympias. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So it it you know that's that's kind of a relatively new theory. Mm -hmm. Fingers point to his wife mainly because okay. she wanted Alexander on the throne. Right. She wanted him there, and you know you're probably going to ask me about this, but the uncle joke at yeah. the wedding, <laughs> um, folks. Imagine you're at a wedding. I'm sure all of you have encountered this. There's somebody at the wedding who's had a lot to drink or something else, and they make really um, inappropriate comments, or they make a scene or something like that. Okay, so what Alexander's uncle did at this ceremony, or at this 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 event... At the wedding, yeah, right? You, yeah. You, yeah, at the wedding. It was actually at the dinner, yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, is he made a joke that um, Philip's new infant son was going to ascend to the throne. He was going to have the throne. Mm -hmm. Alexander, obviously, was somewhat uh, angered by this. Yeah. And so... Was he, he the firstborn son, or did he have others, older yes, brothers? he was the first. He was the yeah. firstborn son. Okay. So uh, it, was, it was the... <laughs> He took an affront to that, obviously, yeah. and uh, started to argue. And uh, his father got in the in into it, and they almost came to blows. Mm -hmm. People had to like physically separate them. Wow! It, it was a big deal. So it was the most awkward thing you could possibly imagine. <laughs> so uh, it's it that's when when that joke was made. It was it was a joke, but it was still there's always truth in some jokes. Oh right? yeah. So that threat was made obvious, and. Um, huh. Olympias did not want that. Right. So. Okay. Fascinating. Do you know about how much time elapsed between the wedding dinner and the incident with his uncle and the actual assassination? I do not. Okay. So, so, but we know that in the meantime, it, it was Olympias, like a year or two. Okay. Yeah. So Olympias was in exile for a while, mm -hmm. maybe plotting, maybe not. Philip is also planning his invasion of Persia at that point, right? right. Yes. So it, is there any possibility that the Persians were involved? I mean, yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, th that's do you put? Do you lend that any any more credence than the stories about Pausanias or Olympias? So, because it sounds like something that a rival power would do, just as much as it sounds like someone you know, a, like a spurned wife or a spurned lover would do. I just don't know why it would be one of his bodyguards. I guess that's that's my biggest hang up is logically that wouldn't make sense i think the persians would try and make that more spectacular where where it would be um, okay more obvious maybe not obvious but i don't, just don't think that that was the tactic that they would take now alexander was pretty insistent that it was Persia, yeah and that was one of the reasons why one of the ways that he he said this is why we should invade mm -hmm. persia because they uh, uh, killed my father but okay the turning point is really the foundations, as, as the title of the podcast suggests, that Philip laid for his son, Alexander, who went right. on to conquer pretty much the known world. How different would our world look today if Persia 
and Greece had continued to develop side by side instead of Greece ultimately conquering Persia. I'm thinking about things like the ideas of reason and logic and that we kind of talked about last week, but also the idea of just simply something like a common language having and having one one person, I'm sorry, having one language, whether you're from Egypt or you're from Persia, modern day Iran, or you're from Greece, you can talk to one another. How, why why is that so important? How different would our world look if that had not taken place? Well, I think you kind of answered your own uh, uh, question, to be honest, because I mean, with, without the language being somewhat common, there would obviously be barriers and barriers in our ability to actually uh, communicate and trade and and. Um, well, but we've always had different languages, so why why would that be? That's never been a barrier to nations developing. They just develop differently. Well, they develop independently, right? What? So how would how would Greece and Persia developing differently have affected our world today? That, I mean, that's kind of where the, the, the whole reason for this season is. Huh, the whole reason why we're doing this season is to talk about how events in the past have shaped our world today. So what would look different today yeah. if you did not have the Persians being conquered by the Greeks, by Alexander, using the army that his father had forged for him? I think the first part of the question is, would the world have been different if Philip had not done the work that he had done, if Alexander had to redo or had to actually do all of that? Okay. And I think that, you know, this this parallels into business and almost every, every other industry is that you look at what you're working with right now, you take an honest assessment and a benchmark that against what you want to accomplish. What do I need in order to accomplish what I have to do? And so Philip did all of that for Alexander. He didn't realize he was doing it for Alexander because he was doing it to accomplish his own goals and everything, right? But had he not done that, Alexander would not have been able to advance the way that he had done despite his ferocity and drive and all of that. He would still have to have done all the work that his dad had done. Okay. In terms of your question, Alexander's conquest and everything that he conquered, I don't want to use the term unified because he brought it under rule, like conquering is Mm -hmm. not just bringing everyone together, it's subjecting everyone to your rule. But he kind of standardized the language, the Greek influence, the exposure to Greek culture that the Persians wouldn't have had Mm -hmm. if, if he hadn't done what he had done. The, the, the Greek influence and how that how the wider world saw it and how, how it engaged changed the landscape of history, I would say. Can you think of any specific ways? Um, like how the wider world saw Greece? Is that what you... I think that's part of it. But I think that, you know, you're, within your question, you kind of said it, like their way of thinking, their uh, philosophy, uh, logic, all of those things that were not not exactly as prominent in Persia. I think there were versions of it in Persia, but not... Yeah, not, there were. Yeah, but not to the extent that it had in Greece. Okay. Here's a question for you. Do you think that that helped out Rome, like when Rome expanded? Was oh, that yeah. a benefit? Oh, absolutely, yeah. because they they already had a unified culture, pretty much. The, the Hellenized culture, Hellenized East, was much more willing to not accept Roman rule, but they were less resistant, I think, than they would have been if it was a bunch of individual countries and kingdoms, each with their own distinct culture, their own distinct language, because the Romans tried very hard to to absorb other cultures into their own and create really a cosmopolitan society on the Greek model. Right. So politically and militarily... Uh, it would have been it would have been much more difficult, I think, for Rome. Now they still would have triumphed because yeah. their military was unsurpassed. Even the Theban wedge wouldn't have st- stood up against the legions, and, and it didn't. And it didn't. Yeah. But 
in terms of integrating these newly conquered lands into the Roman Empire would have been much more difficult mm -hmm. if you didn't have the Greekified or the Hellenized East oh. uh, that had been established by Alexander. Yeah. Final question. Did you do any reading on Alexander's successors? Uh, his uh, four generals who yeah, his, took over? The, the three generals yeah. who took over and then Pergamum. If not, we don't have to go, get into that. I, I mean, I, I haven't recently, but but yeah, they were just unable to, to hold his empire together. So how do you think Alexander died? Do you think it was natural causes or do you think he was murdered? Like I actually think it was an autoimmune disease. You do? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I do. Because it, uh, I've read recently that there's the belief that Alexander, because what, what happened was he was... He looked like he was dead. He couldn't move. There's an autoimmune disease. I can't remember what the name of it is, but it's like an accelerated form of MS mm -hmm. where it attacks um, nerves, obviously, and you lose control of pretty much everything. Okay. Um, now you can actually recover from it. There's a long period of time, and some don't. Right. But um, I think back then they had no idea. So, yeah, he was probably injured. I know that... Well, he was definitely injured or recovering from injuries. Yeah. yeah, yeah, in his armpit. But it was, I think, what he actually died of was something like more along the lines of an autoimmune response. Okay. So, and then the cycle continued because you had, you know, people rise and then they'd be assassinated and then someone else would come up and someone else. And then Rome came in and yeah. said, all right, uh, knock this off. Yeah. yeah and it's, if, you know, the question also, like, if Alexander hadn't died, would he have been able to hold his empire together? I don't think so. It would have been so. interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't think so. I yeah. just, he, he seemed to be a very active person. That takes more of, I mean, you have to be an active ruler, obviously, but mm -hmm. I think he was more engaged with the actual conquering side of it than, than anything else. Probably. So I don't... Uh, I, I, Unless he was a good delegator, which I don't think he was. Delegating. Obviously not. He yeah. de delegated his kingdom to people who are not competent yeah. to, <laughs> to, to, I don't want to say kingdom, his, his empire. Yeah. Uh, to, to people who are not competent enough to hold it together or even even piece it together. Yeah. I mean, it was just it was it was bad, bad, bad. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of securing foundations. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you hear this podcast. It really does help. Thanks and see you next week.